Come on, can we put our hands together one more time for our amazing worship team? That song, man, it just just does something to me. Good morning, everybody. My name is Xavier Maryland. I get a chance to serve as our high school pastor, whether you're here in the room or online or at one of our campuses, the Richmond Rosenberg campus, the Darrington campus, or the Missouri City campus. We are honored that you have chosen to worship with us here at Sugar Creek. Hey, if you will do me a quick favor, though, uh, before we get into our time today, uh, Thursday night, uh, Pastor Mark called members of our team and he informed us that he and his wife, Kathy, would be traveling out of town unexpectedly because her dad had gotten critically ill. And with the snow that's up in Dallas, they were traveling up through Dallas into Oklahoma. It's just been very hectic. It's been very hard for them. And he wanted us to let you know that he is appreciative of your prayers for their family during this time. So if you wouldn't mind, can we just pray together for them right now? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our pastor and for his wife, Kathy, Father, and for who they are to our church and who they are for us and how they lead us. God, it truly is a privilege to be able to follow them as an example. And what we're asking for right now, Father, is that uh, you would be with them as they travel. God, keep them safe. God, give them words to encourage. God, give them strength to care. God, if it be in your will, we pray that you would provide healing. God, we pray, God, that you would allow them to make the right decisions. And we pray more than anything, Father, that you would get the glory glory from this situation. God, thank you because we know that it's already done because you truly are a good God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody together say it. Amen. Now, here's the deal. We don't want you to just pray one time and and be done. We want you to uh, agree to pray with us throughout the week and uh, as they're making decisions and trying to care. So if you agree to be praying with them throughout the week, can you just say amen? Amen. 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 Don't lie. I'm joking. Good. It's so good to be here with you today. Uh, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, we're in a series called The Love Challenge, and we're walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is known as The Love Chapter. Uh, I love 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a book written by a guy named Paul, if I could figure out which way to hold my Bible. There we go. Right side up is the best way. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is written by a guy named Paul, and I loved where it's situated in the book because it's before or it's after chapter 12, which Paul ends like this. Just listen to it. Uh, But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. That is the last verse in chapter 12 as we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then it is before chapter 14, which starts like this. Let love be your high goal. And so we find this love challenge scripture uh, or this love chapter to be in between a better way to live and our highest goal. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've been challenging ourselves in our relationships, both with each other and with God and with friends and with strangers and neighbors and relatives and associates and coworkers to this better way of life, which is love above all else. And that's why we're in this series called the Love Challenge. And I want to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first couple of verses to you, because that's where we're going to be anchored today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number one, it says this, if I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and 
If I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. He gets really honest right here. He says, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Where we're gonna anchor today, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous and then boastful or proud. It's not jealous or boastful or proud. And we'll be anchoring today, doing a deep dive into what the Bible and what the scriptures uh, would define about pride and what the Bible has to tell us about pride as we fight towards loving others and against our pride. I have to tell you a story. If you uh, grew up camping, I grew up a Boy Scout, but I was a bad Boy Scout, not a good one. As a matter of fact, my first camping trip, uh, I got hot and tired and sick and I called my dad. I said, dad, hey, I need you to come get me. And he said, no. And so I was left out there stranded in the middle of the woods, Um, but I was not a good Boy Scout. If you were a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout and you ever went camping, you know that there are a couple of options that you have for sleep. You have a sleeping bag. uh, That's for the regular folks of us. You have a cot. That's how you know. That's the next echelon of camping. And then if you really like comfort, you have an air mattress and you get out the pump. And and so recently my wife and I, we sold a house. We've been here about eight months now, eight months now. We sold a house up in North Dallas and now we're moving down to Houston. There was this weird week or so period where all of our furniture was gone, but we had to remain in the house so that we could close and get some stuff taken care of. As a result, I pulled out one of those old air mattresses for us to sleep on a few of those nights. There's two types of air mattresses. There was the ones that, you know, you plug it in and then you... and you inflate it yourself, afterwards you plug it up and it it provides you your comfort. But there's another type of air mattress, this one's next level. You plug it into the wall, you twist the knob, you cut it on, it inflates itself. It's wonderful. It even has a headboard on it. Imagine that, an air mattress with a headboard. And essentially me and my wife, we chose the easiest option because I didn't like to do a lot of work. And we went to sleep, but something happened every two and a half hours or so while I was asleep. I noticed that my wife would always end up closer to me. And it's not because she was missing me or anything like that. Uh, It's because the air mattress was deflating and we were sinking into the middle of the floor. And by the end of the night, every couple of hours, we would always be flat on the floor. And so I would begrudgingly wake up to take care of this air mattress the same way you would take care of a child. I would wake up to take care of this air mattress. I would reinflate it. But no matter how many times I inflated it, I always ended up back on the floor. And the truth is that it's funny, Pastor Xavier and his wife stuff on the floor, ha ha ha. But the truth is that our pride does the same thing to us. That we have things in our life that we use to inflate ourselves. But the more we inflate, the more we end up empty. The more we end up back in difficult situations. The more we come face to face with the things that we were trying to avoid. And so I want us to dive deeply into the scriptures and look at the word pride. For those of you who might be Bible scholars in the room, if you and I could read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number four in the original Greek language, which is where uh, it was written, that word love is not boastful or proud. It would say agape ou physiotai. And that word physio literally means in the Greek language inflated. 
which means you and I, when we live a proud life, we are self-inflating. It means love is not puffed up. It means it, it doesn't brag about how good it is. And the truth is, whether you say it out loud or whether you believe it in your heart, you and I both have some things we need to work on when it comes to our pride. And so we're going to move pretty fast here. As you can tell in your sermon notes, we have a lot to cover. And we're going to break this down in three different sections. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to prove to all of us that we struggle with pride by giving us some indicators of pride. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to then dig down and figure out if I don't get rid of my pride and if I don't fight against it, what will happen? And then thirdly, we'll answer the question of, well, since I'm convinced that I have pride, I'm convinced that it's a bad thing for me to have. What am I supposed to do now? And that's where we start. The first bullet point you have there is what are some indicators of unhealthy pride? What are some indicators of unhealthy pride? See, there are things in life that you and I can be proud of in a healthy way. You might be proud of your kids. You might be proud of your grandchildren. You might be proud of um, your work. You might be proud of the country that you were born in. You, you might be proud of a sports team. All those things are healthy pride, unless it's, of course, you're proud of the Packers or the Cowboys, in which case you shouldn't be proud whatsoever. That's an unhealthy pride. First indicator, I'm a Cowboys fan for 20 years. Um, but there's, I'm joking with you, but there are some indicators of unhealthy pride. Remember, this is self-inflating, arrogant pride. And, and, and I want to go ahead and give you the first indicator is this. Pride refuses to submit to God's control. Pride refuses to submit to God's control. Let me tell you how I know I struggle with pride a little bit and how I know you probably struggle with pride a little bit because there are those of us, you're like me, when you first read this or when we first writing it, the first thing I thought was, okay, I can check that one off the list. I don't struggle to submit to God's control. But here's the deal. You and I have sin in our lives and sin is quite literally a refusal to submit to the will of God. It is God, I realize that you have a plan for my life and a plan for how you want the rest of humanity to act and respond and behave, but I believe I have a way that is a little bit better than what you're saying, God. I know that you have a way you want marriage to be and, and all of those things, but I have a way that I think marriage should go and I have a way that I think relationships should go. God, I know you tell me that you want me to tithe, but the truth is I have a way that I think my money should go. And every single in our life is literally a refusal to submit to the authority and to the control of God. And it's because at the heart of our sin issue is deep down, God, I know better than you know. Number two, uh, uh, if you look at that scripture right there, Psalm chapter 10, verse four says this, it says, in his pride, the wicked does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride goes before destruction and hardiness before fall. Think about for a moment the area of your life that you've been refusing to submit to God. Mine came pretty quickly. Yours may have. Just jot it down and say, God, I know this is a sin issue, but I also know it's a pride issue. And number two, number two is this. Pride lifts us up by tearing someone else down. Pride lifts us up by tearing someone else down. 
remember we're giving indicators of unhealthy pride. Um, let me tell you kind of how these indicators are supposed to work. Uh, you guys live in this greater Houston area just like I do. And for the past week or so, it's been much colder than they promised me it would be when I moved from Dallas. As a matter of fact, I feel lied to and bamboozled. So whoever's on the welcome committee, please send my complaints all the way up the top. Um, and if you have a car that's uh, above a certain time period, what'll happen is it'll tell you, hey, your tires need inflating. Now, the truth is, the truth is your tires didn't make any noise. They might, you might not have even noticed that there was a problem, but there's an indicator that tells you there's something I need to be paying attention to. And that's what these indicators are going to serve for us in our pride. It's going to say, hey, there's an indicator that I need to be paying attention to that proves that I might have some pride in my life. Because of that, anywhere you see the word in these first couple of points, pride refuses to submit to God's control or pride lifts us up by tearing someone else down. You can really draw a little dash next to it and put I. When I refuse to submit to God's control or when I lift myself up by tearing someone else down, it's an indicator that I've let pride creep into the way that I interact with people. I want to show you a scripture. It's in Luke chapter 18, verse number 11 through, through four. It's a guy who would do something that none of us would do, but it's a good indicator of pride. It says this, Jesus is uh, telling this story. It says the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Imagine that. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Then it says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone else who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Whenever you and I get our sense of comfortability and accomplishment by comparing ourselves to someone else, that is an indicator that pride has crept into our lives. Now, the truth is you might not stand up and pray it out loud, but you do it in your heart. I do it in my heart. Let me give you some examples. Some of you, uh, <laughs> I'll start with an easy one. Some of you, you care so much about your grass that you drive on through your neighborhood looking at everybody else's grass and you go, see, they cut it, but they didn't weed it. You see, they cut it, but they didn't get the grass clippings up. What kind, of, what kind of yard is that? And I feel better about my yard based off the care that someone else puts into their yard. Uh, there's a guy on our staff. Recently, we bought a house and, and I told him, hey, you know, I have sacrificed and saved so that I don't have to do a lot of yard work. I'm told you I wasn't a great Boy Scout. And there's a guy on our staff. He judges me for not doing my own yard work, but that's okay. He's prideful. You hear that? I'm joking. That's okay. We all have some struggle and that's his. But the truth is we do it in our own, other parts of our lives. You judge how successful you have raised your children based off your, based off your siblings' kids. You judge how great you feel about your career and your financial situation by Googling what the average person your age and your demographic makes or has saved in their 401k, and it inflates your pride a little bit and makes you feel more comfortable because the truth is your comfortability and your peace comes from the comparison, not from God. And we all struggle with this. 
It, it happens even in school. You're working on a degree and you want to be the person that gets the curve. Hey, I have set the pace. I am better than everyone else and everyone else knows and recognizes that I am the standard. And anytime you and I go to others for comparison to feel better about ourselves, it's an indicator that we have a pride issue that will sneak in and destroy our relationships. I need to move because it's, it's, uh, it's hurting my soul. E, pride overinflates our strengths. Pride overinflates our strengths. In the book of Daniel, the author writes about God giving a vision to a great king and ruler at the time. And it talks about how Daniel, the king called Daniel over to interpret the dream and interpret the vision. And that's what we find in Daniel chapter four, verse 27. This is the interpretation. It says, therefore, O king, Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to be oppressed. It may be then your prosperity will continue. All the way down to verse 30, he said, uh, this is the king talking. He said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31, watch how quickly it happens. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. We see this king become so proud of who he has become, become so proud of what he feels he has built that he's taking credit for something that God himself did. And you and I do the same things. We look around at our jobs, our children. We look around at our connect groups and our Sunday morning connect classes. We look around at all of this stuff and we overinflate our strength and our impact on the situation. Now the truth is maybe it looks like the king and you say it out loud boastfully, or maybe you struggle with overinflating your strengths the way that I do. The way I struggle with overinflating my strengths is this. I don't say, God, I'm better than anybody else or God, look what I've built. But you know what I do? I overcommit. And I say yes to things that I probably shouldn't say yes to. I say yes to helping people that I probably can't help. I say yes to doing things and traveling back home to see my family three or four times a year, even though I know I probably shouldn't. Why? Because I overinflate my strength and I lie to myself and tell myself that I don't need rest. And the truth is that if you're experiencing burnout in your life the way that I have, It may be because there's a pride issue causing us to overinflate how good we are, to overinflate how strong we are, to overinflate the fact that we don't feel weakness or pain. And those things just aren't true. Pride overinflates our strength. We've taken a look at some indicators and I hope that by now we've all proven that we struggle with pride in some way, shape or form. Whatever your main one is that you struggle with, it might be good to underline it or circle it so that you can come back to it. But now we're going to look at what happens if we don't get this right. What will pride do to our relationships? After all, 1 Corinthians 13 chapter 4 is all about love and relationships. So what will pride and arrogance do to our relationships? It says it's arrogance damages relationships. The first thing and first relationship it damages is arrogance injures our relationship with God. 
James chapter four, verse six says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, when you and I stand in a place of arrogance, we are really saying, God, I don't need you. And God will oppose you to prove to you that you need him. I heard it said this way, that God is not in the business of punishing. Meaning that when I do something wrong or get arrogant, God is not punishing me to break me. But what God is in the business of is correcting. Meaning that he will withhold things from your life in order for you to look in a different direction. If I can remove the distractions long enough for you to focus back on me, I can get you back to where I need you to be. You see him do it with the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And so maybe it is right now that if you're experiencing abnormal tension in your life, I'm not saying this is always the case, but it could be that I've started to rely so much on myself. I've started to rely so much on my comfortability. I've started to rely so much on what I can provide that the Lord has started to oppose me. The things that I used to be good at, not necessarily anymore. Used to be salesman of the year, can't sell water in the desert. Whatever it is, maybe God has started to oppose you or oppose me because we've become proud. Arrogance damages our relationship with God. Point B, Pride creates and maintains conflict with others. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 literally says pride leads to conflict. Why is this? It's because conflict arises and we get so prideful that we are not willing to listen to another person's opinion or even consider that we are wrong about a situation because our pride will not let us admit it. Pride leads towards conflict. Many of the uh, conflicts that you have in your life are probably because right now, because one person is not willing to admit that they might be wrong about a situation, which leads us to the next one. Pride destroys intimacy with those closest to us. The Bible has called us to be and live in intimate relationships. Whether you're a Christian or not, you were designed to be in intimate relationships with people, not just husband and wife, but brothers and sisters. You are built to live in community. You are built to live around people who care about you, built to live around people who can uplift you. And the truth is that when we have pride in our lives, it will destroy the proximity and the intimacy that we have in many of our relationships. I can't think of a better example to prove how pride will tear at the love and fabric of an intimate relationship than this two story. Uh, about a week and a half or two weeks ago, I have two friends, neither of them know this story I'm about to tell you. I have two friends, both struggling in their marriage. Because of how close we are, both of their wives called me to talk to them. One friend, I picked up the phone, I called him. He admitted everything his wife. So I said, hey man, just wanted to check on you. He admitted everything his wife told me. I didn't have to pressure him. We talked for two and a half hours. I left the conversation feeling closer to him than I ever have in my life. He, he put his pride down. And then because he had practiced putting his pride down, he did the same thing to his wife. He put his pride down. And although he was offended by something, he was willing to put his pride aside to pursue his wife in the moment. Same situation, next friend, I called him. Hey man, just checking on you, how are you? 
And he lied to me. He told me everything was fine. Told me nothing was wrong. Told me everything is running a meal. I left the conversation wondering if he truly considered me a friend or not. And that's because the pride of not being, not wanting to be seen as inadequate kept him from sharing something that he probably really wanted to talk about. And I wonder right now in your life, if there's something that you haven't confessed, I wonder if there's something in your life that's been weighing on your heart, but you're struggling to be vulnerable with anybody, struggling to admit, if you're being honest, just how hard your marriage is, struggling to admit just how weak you really feel. I have no time to tell you this story, but I, I just, I feel led to say it. My wife and I, uh, she's sitting right over there. She's amazing. We've been married four years now, coming up this year. She would tell you that they're the best three years of her life. Um, that's because the first year was horrible. It was not fun. It was difficult. I felt depressed, but I was a newlywed and I was a pastor and I spent the whole year faking and pretending. And it wasn't until she and I sat together and said, hey, we need some help doing this thing that God invited these other couples into our life. As a matter of fact, those two gentlemen that I was just talking to you about are some of the same people who walked me through the most difficult point at my marriage to date. And when we are willing to be vulnerable, it allows us to build intimate, close and loving relationships. And let me tell you something for the Christians in the room, that is what inspires non-Christians to become Christians. It's not the Bible knowledge. It's how much you're willing to love, how much you're willing to open up, how much you're willing to listen, how much you're willing to share about what truly is happening in your life. Okay, let's, let's move. It's, it's tough. The pride always postpones reconciliation. Mark Twain said this, temper gets us into trouble, but pride keeps us there. And just to reiterate, you and I cannot grow in proximity to people unless we are willing to put down our pride and admit that the truth is always closer to the middle than we're willing to admit. I don't care whatever issue you're struggling with. It can be a political issue. It could be a financial, relational issue. It can be a social issue. Whatever issue you and I are dealing with, the answer is probably closer to the middle than we are willing to admit. And conflict arises because you and I aren't willing to step out of our corners long enough to admit that this part of what I'm thinking or believing is wrong. We've talked about what some indicators of pride are and there's scriptural references there for you. We've talked about what happens if we don't get pride under control. Now let's get an answer. What am I supposed to do? What is the answer to pride? Love that builds strong relationships is humble. Love that builds strong relationships is humble. That's your point right there. Humility maintains a realistic view of who God created us to be. Humility maintains a realistic view of who God created us to be. Romans chapter 12 verse three says this, it says, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities. All of us have failures. But finding a balanced view of ourselves is humility. That means I don't get too high 
on who I am, but I also don't get too low about who I am. I I, I have a mentor who tells me like this. He says, everybody has strengths and everybody has opportunities to grow. And you and I need to do a better job at admitting the things that I may be good at and admitting the things that I may need to grow in. And if I'm not able to admit what I need to grow in and not able to admit what I need, what I am good in, then I have an unbalanced view of myself. Let me tell you how you know if you have an unbalanced view of yourself and aren't able to admit your weaknesses. If you cannot admit a weakness without attaching a strength, you have an identity issue and it's really caught up in your pride. And I can say that so confidently because it's a struggle for me. I tell my wife all the time, one of my weaknesses is for whatever reason, when I get home today, I'm going to do it again, even though I know I'm not supposed to do it. For whatever reason, when I get to the door of the house, wherever I take my shoes off, that's where they stay for at least two days. I know it seems simple. It's easy. But every time I tell her, I say, hey, I took, I I didn't get my shoes together, but you know what I did last night? I washed the dishes. That's because I cannot admit the weakness without attaching the strength, have an elevated view of myself. Now, the truth is, that's a a funny example, but you can add that at any point in your life. I have to be able to to admit that I have strengths and I have weaknesses. Romans 15, 7 says, accept one another, then just then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, here's the deal. Christ did not accept your sin. He accepted you. So my weakness is not I've been living with someone for 10 years. That's not a weakness. That's a sin unmarried. Sorry, I turned up real quick there. I know it's zero to a hundred. The point is God has accepted you as a person. He loves you, not our sin. And so we don't need to get too high or too low about ourselves, but we have to find a healthy balanced view that's somewhere in the middle. B, humility recognizes God's grace in our life. First Corinthians four, seven says, what are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? All you have is from God. Why act as though you have accomplished something on your own? When I recognize God's grace in my life, it sounds a lot like this phrase. If not for the grace of God, there I am. Whenever you and I see someone who's less fortunate, if we ever look around our family and we are the successful one, If we ever find somebody out who's addicted, if you ever drive through Houston and see someone who may be homeless, if you ever travel and see someone less fortunate, if you ever see someone fail at a marriage, if you ever see someone get caught up in a sin, grace and humility recognizes God, if not for the fact that you gave me a different mind and heart, there I am. I had a mentor tell me like this, you and I, we're nothing more than turtles on fence posts. God picked us up one day and put us up here and at any given moment, he could pick us up and take us down. So there's no need for us to become puffed up about who we are. We have to recognize the grace of God. And when you recognize the grace of God, it gets us to point C. Humility recognizes and treats others as valuable. First Peter 2.17 says, show respect for everyone, love Christians everywhere. And those are your two points. Show respect for everybody and love Christians everywhere. A, show respect for everybody. B, love Christians everywhere. See, when you and I get humility right, we treat everybody with a level of respect. 
I want you to imagine every human being you interact with has a price tag on their head and it's not set by you and it's not set by them, it's set by God. And the way you treat them is really me saying, God, I either agree with what you say about this person or I disagree with what you say about this person. And when we have humbled ourselves and fought against our pride, it allows us to see everybody in the world as a 10. Everybody is valuable in the kingdom of God. And here's what we believe. We believe that in this church right now, you are just as valuable as I am. That because I'm teaching right now and I have on this little suit and turtleneck, it doesn't mean a single thing. You are just as valuable in the kingdom of God as me, as the worship team, as anybody else. And you have a gift and God wants to see you use that gift. And he wants to see you use what you have to inspire the people around you, to inspire the world around you, for people to see you. That's why it's the love challenge for people to see how you treat and value them and for them to ask, who is this God that you serve? I want to end with a story. Um, recently, um, some of the pastors and I, uh, we were traveling to go to a conference. We want to be better equipped, better leaders. We want to come back and lead our church well. While we were there, one of the pastors looked up and said, hey, there's an NBA game tonight, a pretty major game. It's going to be televised. So I did what any grown man would do in the moment. I called my wife. I said, hey, I'm going to move some money because I want to go to the NBA game. I got to pay for it. And, okay. Uh, I moved the money around. I got permission from the wife because I didn't want any conflict when I got home. And we went to the game. And we're there. There's about seven or eight of us. And one of the pastors on our team, it's a great game, by the way. One of the pastors on our team finds joy in celebrating whatever team everybody else is not celebrating. So I don't know how he does it. I won't tell you his name because I want him to remain anonymous. I don't want you picking on him. Uh, it's Pastor Mason at the Rich Rose Campus. <clears throat> He just likes celebrating other teams. So, I mean, he's jumping up and beating his chest every time the other team scores. There's a little kid, probably nine or 10 years old at the end of our row. And every time Pastor Mason says, yes, he goes, mm. he like whips his head at him. And it is hilarious. They end up becoming pretty good friends. Like it is hilarious. And one point in the game, uh, one of the guys on the other team does something amazing. And I mean, there is a hush over the stadium because everybody's getting nervous now because their team, you know, it might lose because this guy just did all this crazy stuff. And the guy is down on the court. He's beating his chest. He's walking around. He's flexing. And exactly what he's doing, Pastor Mason is doing the same thing. He's beating his chest. He's walking around. If you ever seen me, he has his long hair. He's swinging his hair. He's taking his hat off. And for a second there, I thought he was going to get shirtless. But uh, he's celebrating as best he can. And out of nowhere, one of the other pastors on our staff, he leans up and he just says, scoreboard. And Pastor Mason pauses and we all pause. And he repeats it again, scoreboard. And what he was communicating is, if you'll look up for just one minute, you'll realize that that was a great play, but your team is down by 17 points in the fourth quarter. <laughs> and you will understand that this is not the moment to be bragging. This is not the moment. Yes, this thing that you just did may look good, but in the comparison of the game, in the comparison of the season, in the comparison of the league, this is not the moment to brag or to boast. And you and I need to do a better job at consistently giving ourselves scoreboard moments. That yes, you've had a great year. 
Yes, you've had a great moment. Yes, you have a great relationship. You have a great marriage. But if I take a second to pause, to get my focus off of what's happening around me, and I look up and I stop comparing myself to what's around me, but I compare myself to Jesus and what Paul would call the upward call of God, I would realize this is not the time to boast. This is not the time to become prideful. This is not the time to feel good about an accomplishment. This is the time to keep my head down, to continue to run the race that God has given me, to force my way and to force myself to look more like Jesus and to take as many people to heaven as I can when I get there. We all need a scoreboard moment. Can we pray together as we ask God? God, thank you for people who are gathered. God, at the heart of it, we want to be just like you. But today, Father, we're trying to fight our pride. And the truth is, God, the pride arises in our life like weeds in a healthy garden. And it comes to damage our relationships. It comes to damage uh, our relationship with you and to, uh, to inflate us, God, with things that aren't meant to inflate us. And what we're asking right now is that you would graciously and gracefully move us back to the area of humility. God, we don't, we don't want to deal with your wrath. So God, if you would just help us, Father, to be the people you've called us to be so that we could change this world, this region, this city, and our own homes and our church with how much we love people and how much we love you because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody together say it. Amen. Amen.